Hey there, welcome to night school. You know, I mention on this show often that I'm anti-phone shaming, anti-social media shaming, anti-selfie shaming. And I, I wouldn't even say like I'm anti, like I understand why people do that. And I also recognize where I could easily be that person. I could easily be the person who is shaming people for becoming indulgent, self-indulgent in these new mediums. And they're not really new. They're on a decorative level, they are. We have new devices for accessing them, and we have... Uh, and, and there's there's an, uh, a new aesthetic. But what's going on behind these things is something that we've always done and always will do. You know, the way that we transmit information, even though it's faster, it's more widespread, it's not fundamentally different from the way that we've always done that. And I came across a piece of writing I did for a, a music project. It was a manifesto. You know, I'm, I'm a very manifesto-oriented person, if that's not obvious. And I don't think manifestos are all nasty, terroristic, Ted Kaczynski-esque pieces of writing. You know, I think a manifesto, just any time you, you write a rant... You know, that comes from some kind of, you know, it's, it's a, a difference between a manifesto and an essay is that an essay is sort of detached, or it should be. You know, it's not, it's not a product of passion, whereas a manifesto is basically a passionate essay. It's, it's something that you are personally invested in for whatever reason. And for that reason, manifestos often become these dark and nasty you know, trying to hurt the world or explain why you want to hurt the world. And as a manifesto-oriented person, which is my uh, category, you know, people go around like, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a white male. I don't identify as a white male. I identify simply as a manifesto-oriented person. Those are my people. Those are my people. Uh, but, uh, you know, as that kind of person, you know, it's never really come from that kind of place, right? I've, I've never been someone who wants to lash out in all my dark periods. Uh, it's never really been about lashing out. But I found a piece of writing I did, you know, 13 years ago, and it was dealing with, this is before smartphones, this is before words like algorithm and social media were even part of the conversation. This is early 2007, and of course, MySpace existed, message boards existed, and that's what I mean, where it's like these things that we're doing now, the ultra-connected mediums we have now, like all of these different social media accounts that everybody is using that have no real niche. Because that was the thing about, these, th these same things existed in different forms then, and they're not that different. Um, you know, because if you look at Facebook, it's not different. It's it basically combined AOL Instant Messenger with email, with message boards, and you can see where it's not fundamentally different. It just combined them all, and it became much more um, widespread. A lot more people are using it, uh, whereas in say the late '90s or early 2000s, these mediums, these forums, these uh, the early social media platforms like MySpace, they were just more niche. 
you weren't connected to as many people and the people you were connected to were based more around a common interest of some kind, even if you just kind of fell into it. Cause that happened to me in some cases, it wasn't like I, I connected with certain people because we had a, uh, it wasn't like the initial connection was based on some deep interest in something. It was, there was a, a, a randomness to it that was kind of interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, so this has always existed in some form. And, like, looking at this piece of writing I did, and that, that sounds very fancy. It was just a, an off-the-cuff manifesto I included with a for a music project that never came out. Uh, it was never released. And looking at that writing, it was definitely very... There was definitely something very heated about it. But in that writing, I was making the point that, you know... There's this attachment to the the analog medium, and the analog medium is so much better in people's mind. It's so much more pure than the digital, because that was something I experienced in music and uh, you know certain subcultures. Is there's this t- attachment to analog, the analog medium, where it's like records and tapes, and for that matter, CDs are better than MP3s. And I actually believe that. You know, I believe there is something to presentation and there's an atmosphere and there is a a quality toward certain sounds and aesthetics and I do believe that but I'm also self-critical and when I make that statement about you know people who are analog purists I mean there were people there are people who are like DVDs suck VHS is where it's at and I as someone who's never been a movie guy that wasn't my thing but you can see where different interests books you know fuck the Kindle it's like uh, the John Waters quote I've referenced on here. You know, if you go to someone's house and they don't have a Kindle, don't fuck them. You know, uh, my version of that. Uh, but you can see where John Waters himself, that famous John Waters quote, you know, the real quote, if you're not familiar, you know, all sorts of uh, 22-year-old girls like to, you know, post it online. But it's like his famous quote is like, if you go to someone's house and they don't have books, don't fuck them. And you can see where that itself is this form of like physical analog purity. And, and, and you know, in, in his statement, it wasn't actually about the books themselves. It was just about people who read. Basically, if someone isn't a reader, you know, as if that's the only way to gain knowledge. But you can see where people have a million different ways of doing this. They have uh, something is, it's it, there's this purity that only exists in certain objects that are from a certain point in time. And in my manifesto, it was, I was talking about that. I was talking about all of this. I was talking about the criticism of medium is bullshit, basically. When you feel like newer technological mediums are somehow worse, or they're false, or they are um, responsible for some behavior you don't like in people, because that was the criticism of the internet early on, it's the criticism of social media, it's it's all this stuff where it's like, as if that created these impulses in people, as if that created the, this behavior in people, uh, you know, and... In the manifesto, too, I mentioned, you know, mass media, where there is this tendency to criticize the 24-hour news networks. And it's obvious why. I mean, it's obvious to anybody why having a 24-hour news network that is based around promoting, I mean, that's what it is, promoting bad news, promoting fear, 
you know, when you have a platform, like, because news should just come and go. I mean, when you think about what a news channel should be in theory, it should be something that is basically on call 24-7, and when news happens, you report it. And that's kind of what the news net 24-hour news networks are modeling, where it's like, we're going to have this on all the time because you can't wait till the 5 o'clock news. When news happens, you need to know it now. And so the idea behind like a 24-hour news network um, makes sense to me because it makes much more sense to just have a channel where you go to hear news as it happens. But the problem is it becomes this self-perpetuating, um, it, it becomes self-perpetuating and you end up just repeating those that news. It doesn't become this thing that is like a black screen and then when the news happens it pops up for an hour to let you know what's going on. It becomes something where you have to fill that space. You have to keep that space filled. You have to keep viewers watching. And so you can see where it becomes malignant, but the idea behind it isn't crazy. It's not, you know, some sinister plot to keep people scared, although I, I don't, I think that's a part of it. I think that's become a part of it for sure. But again, people have always done that. People have always used the news. Even when you needed uh, Paul Revere on a horse running around, you know, what was Paul Revere doing? Scaring people. He was a new Paul Revere was a news anchor on horseback running around scaring people and for good reason maybe. You know, Paul Revere was telling people that he, the British are coming. And it's good information. Thank you. Thank you for the information, Polly. You know, that's good, but it doesn't change the fact that he was scaring people. And so it shows you that sometimes scaring people is good because the reality can be scary. The fucking redcoats are coming. Let's get ready. Uh, but but I don't think that a 24-hour news network is that much different than that. So you can see where it's like the medium doesn't change the fundal, the fundal, the fundamental, uh, talking about Kindles, talking about fundals, the fundamental nature of human communication and the exchange of information. That doesn't change. It becomes more intense. It becomes more prolific. The information proliferates quicker and, and uh, uh you know, much more, it becomes much more widespread, but it doesn't really change the nature of our communication. And that was also the issue with the internet, where you can't believe what you read on the internet. That's what you used to hear in the early days of the internet, when people were still afraid of, of losing their, their wives um, to new men, losing their children to pedophiles. Everybody you talk to online's a pedophile. He's a pedophile. Um, but you can see where people still don't trust the internet. They still think that, oh, people are going to give you misinformation, but the reality is going out in the world, it, you're just filled with misinformation. The internet isn't the culprit, even though it makes, makes it easier. I mean, there was that rumor it spread throughout my junior high, I think I was in ninth grade, that little Bow Wow, you know, speaking of pedophiles for whatever, for whatever reason, like that little Bow Wow was, you know, abused by his limo driver. And it wasn't true, but it was... The internet was around, but it was early. Most kids weren't on it that much. And this rumor went around my school one day, and I heard kids talking about it. And there was almost this joy to it over this non-event, this thing that never happened. Uh, and you saw that every urban legend, every myth, all kinds of things. You can see where there's this, you see it with the game of telephone. And I referenced this, I'll stop referencing the manifesto, but I mentioned it in there. It's like we have this idea that, 
mass media and the internet are responsible for the spread of misinformation. And we act like the term fake news is something new. It's something that we've always had, always will have. I imagine cavemen were spreading what's now called fake news. Uh, but the example I use, the, the classic example, and this was an early epiphany. You know, I talk about epiphanies on here without giving many examples. One of the earliest epiphanies I had as a child was this theater troupe came to my elementary school and we went into a portable. My class went into a portable, which if you're not familiar, I don't know if they have portables in other parts of the world, uh, but portables are these, when the school, I guess, got too many students, they set up these outdoor classrooms, not outdoor, but like these buildings outdoors that are just these these really, dep- Jesus, turn this phone off. Um, uh, speaking of phones, phone shaman, don't call me. I keep this thing around me and it vibrates all the time, but I get real mad when a scammer calls me. Uh, but anyway, portables, they're just these really just universally depressing buildings, often a light shade of brown with a ramp leading up to them. Shitty carpet, gross. The one, there was one at my elementary school and it, um, it uh, smelled like, uh, what do you call it, uh, pancake syrup. It smelled like cheap pancake syrup for whatever reason all the time. And so we were in there with this theater troupe, this traveling theater troupe that taught kids basic drama exercises, acting exercises. And there was one guy in the theater troupe, and this is you know getting off track here, but he had gray hair, a mustache, and he told us, he's like, Jim Carrey, just out of nowhere. They were talking about their background. He's like, Jim Carrey, I knew Jim Carrey when he was living in his car. And you could tell it's like, and here you are in a traveling theater troupe that goes to elementary schools. It was just you could you could sense the bitterness in this guy. And uh, you know, first it's the phone, then it's the dog. And I, I recognize I'm going to have to do something about this. I'm going to have to really figure out a, a situation here with Batman because he disrupted the last episode, and it's totally fine. But I can't just. It's fun for like an episode, but it's it's not going to be something that can happen all the time. And I'm actually going to pause this for the first time ever on this show. All right, I believe we are rolling again. I believe it worked. I believe the pause, I actually hit a pause button on this recorder and it worked. Um, Batman is sitting here, not barking. But anyway, this guy in the theater troupe, I just remember, what I remember about him was he was like, Jim Carrey, because this was at the height of Ace Ventura when I was in elementary school. You know, I'm sure that there were kids in my class who wanted to be the next Jim Carrey. He was really worshipped. You know, if you weren't an elementary school kid at that time, it was just unbelievable. Like, kids, the kids who wanted to be, like, funny, and I wanted to be funny, but this wasn't me, but the kids who wanted to be funny, like, they were just doing Jim Carrey impressions all the time. So Jim Carrey's name probably came up when we were talking to this uh, acting troupe, and this guy's like, Jim Carrey? I knew Jim Carrey when he was sleeping in the back of his car. It was just this very candid moment of bitterness from this guy who's in a, a drama troupe that goes to elementary schools. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but just it's funny to think of that guy's situation versus Jim Carrey's and the bitterness uh, in his voice. But anyway, long story short, information 
one of the little drama exercises we did is we sat in a circle in this depressing pancake syrup smelling uh, portable, uh, the pancake portable, and we played the game of telephone, which everybody's familiar with, and anybody can probably see where I'm going with this story. Uh, but we, someone started a, a secret, you whisper in the person next to you in their ear, and then they tell it to the next person, they tell it to the next person, and so on. And after the game was over, after it went all the way around the circle, we each were told, we went around in a circle, and we were each told to to, to say what we were told. And it was amazing, because the original secret that the original person started, it stayed consistent for a few people, and then you could see it start to morph a little bit, where the content was very much, the point was the same. You know, it was like somebody just misheard it when they repeated it, but you could tell where it was still pretty much the same point. But then it got to one, but it it still changed. It was still changing as it went around the circle, and there were little changes, and even that changed the point over time. But then it got to one person who just said something completely different or completely deliberately changed it. And that was really fascinating to see where it was like, oh, that person deliberately distorted the message just for fun. And props to them, because that's that's fun to do, especially because it was obvious who did it in the class, and it wasn't me. I'm amazed that it wasn't me. Uh, but it was just an epiphany for me where I was like, oh, even just even if sitting around a circle of 30 kids and you whisper something in someone's ear with the intention of that same information traveling around the circle, it changes naturally because people don't remember the exact wording. And by not remembering the exact wording, it changes the point a little bit. It gets a little bit distorted. But then you have that person who just you know, throws a complete—they put a wrench in it where— they deliberately change the message entirely, and you see where people do that everywhere all the time. And so what plays out on a larger level, you know, you get, you get, if that happens in a circle of 30 kids in a classroom, you can imagine what happens out in the world. So we're lucky we really have any reliable information at all. We truly are. It's truly a privilege to have any reliable information about the world at all. But you throw in... You know, you think about the internet as a massively complicated version of the game of telephone. And of course, you're going to have a hard time finding the facts. And of course, it's going to be very subjective. Of course, it is. So you can't blame the internet itself, though. The internet is just, it's mirroring what already goes on in our every interaction. Um, But uh, back to the phone idea, you know, it's easy to focus on the medium, and I was one of the last people I knew to have a flip phone, and I know there were people who still have flip phones, I know there were people who have had them since I I got a smartphone, whatever, but, you know, part of it was just I didn't want to make the jump, I didn't want to spend the money and make the jump, and then when I did, I did, and I was also happy with just being able to message people and call people, and that's still most of what I use a, a smartphone for. But there was a little bit of pride. There was a little bit of this, oh, well, I have a flip phone. And in the same way, someone, the, first, you know, the first person who got a smartphone may have felt like they were on the cutting edge because they had the new device. I remember a girlfriend of mine got a smartphone pretty early on, and it was, like, exciting. It was like, whoa, this is, this is a pretty uh, exciting and new thing. And, 
when everybody gets a smartphone, though, it becomes cutting edge to still have a flip phone, and you feel something exciting in telling people that. It's like the person who says, I don't have a TV. I don't have a TV. I don't have a smartphone. You know, it becomes a sense, it becomes almost this counter-revolutionary, you know, statement to have the old device. And that's cool if you genuinely like the old device, because, you know, while I, I have no reason to stay with a flip phone, because I don't feel like I'm addicted to the features that a smartphone provides me, although I occasionally use them, I, I will check social media on them, I will take photos, I do enjoy it, and I enjoy that. You know, I don't feel like it controls me. I think that's an important part, too, is not being controlled by the features. But one thing I do miss about a flip phone is I liked the way that you could message people. I liked, I liked the way that, even though it took a long time, I liked that you had to hit the same key multiple times to get the right letter, and it was very difficult to type out a long message because you were having to hit so many different combinations and you had to hit this button so many times because, uh, like, say, the letter or, or the number one corresponded to A, B, C, so you have to hit one three times to get to C. So you can see where you had to stick to pretty concise messages and uh, one difficulty with that was just when everybody else got smartphones and I still had a flip phone, people would send you these long messages and you really couldn't reply to them with any length. It was just, it was like, whoa, because these people are typing on a little mini keyboard and, you know, I'm just, I'm hitting each button three times just to get one letter. But you could also do that, you know, the more you did that, the more you could do that without even looking at it. And I liked the physicality of that. I really did like the physicality of that. Not enough to keep using it. Um, and that's why, Jesus Christ, see what's going on now is, is like I live next to this trail and I like that people are getting outdoors and getting more exercise. And I think that's an important part of this whole process of lockdown is people actually getting outside, but it's led to so many more people using this trail and, it, you know, Batman is just very sensitive to that. He's very territorial. Chihuahuas are very territorial. So it's just a new thing I'm having to learn how to deal with. And I'm not angry about it. I'm just, it's just something, you know, it's just something. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it's like you can, I, th I think that where some of this stuff becomes okay and I don't, I don't mean that it's there's really any right or wrong to it, but it's like if you genuinely like flip phones, if you genuinely like that medium, and you like it enough to want to continue using it for its own sake, that is valid to me. But continuing to use a flip phone as some act of stubborn rebellion, you know, there's somebody else out there who could say to the flip phone, the flip phone, to the flip phone. Uh, loyalist, like, oh, well, I don't even have a phone at all. I don't even have a cell phone. I don't even use anything. You can always find somebody who's a bigger Luddite. Uh, you can always find somebody who's more of a primitivist. And isn't that a good contradiction, the idea of being taking the primitive nature and saying, I'm an ist. I'm a primitivist. Oh, he's a primitivist. And somebody who's truly living that way, of course, like isn't going to call themselves that. But there are people who have that outlook. There are people who, you know, live rustic lives as an act of rebellion. And I mean, I, I referenced Ted Kaczynski, and that's a great example. Like he couldn't just live a life 
out in a cabin in Montana, a self-sufficient, natural life. He had to mail bombs to people. He had to be hateful and angry about it. He was basically somebody who stubbornly kept using a flip phone and bragged about it and had to shame people for using smartphones. I mean, that's basically what Ted Kaczynski is. And not that he didn't have insight. I mean, I've read Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. It's one of the more famous modern manifestos, and there's a lot of great points in there, especially about the leftism and the right. He has some great political insight. He has some great insight into what we're doing to the world. But that doesn't change the fact that Ted Kaczynski today would have just been a guy with a flip phone telling people, oh, did you know I have a flip phone and I don't, I don't have a social media account? Ted Kaczynski would have been that guy who goes, I don't do Facebook and wants you to know. But yet in doing so, attaches himself to the very existence of the things he's opposed to because that's what I'm getting at. That's what you do when you stubbornly oppose technology, when you stubbornly chain yourself to earlier forms of technology is that you attach yourself to the very thing that you are standing against. And I think a great example of that is even just positivity and negativity. And when somebody, you see this a lot in what I call the positivity industry. You know, the motivational quote, the self-help business, you know, what I call the, the, the broad positivity industry, and I think we all know what that means, and it's not a new topic on this show, but in the positivity industry, there's this, it's not just good enough to be positive, it's not just good enough to be constructive and productive and think in a healthy manner, there's also this anti-negativity to it where it's not just good enough to live a positive life, but you have to be fearful and hateful in some ways of negativity itself, where the second somebody says something negative or you see something negative, you either have to hide from it or shame it. Oh my God, negative thinking. She's so negative. It's like, when you say that about somebody, when you comment about how somebody else is so negative, you yourself are making a negative statement, and that's obvious, but it's easy to do. And in the bigger picture of this is that it's okay. You can be a positive person who occasionally expresses negativity, and it's actually healthier than trying to be anti-negative because by, be, by trying to be anti-negative, you aren't being positive. You are basically um, twisting yourself up. I mean, you're going to twist yourself up if you try to be anti-negative because you're rejecting a natural part of your emotional spectrum. You're rejecting natural sensations, and what you should be doing is trying to control those sensations. Rather than beating yourself up, because you can do that, I mean, and I've gone through that myself, as I've become a quote-unquote more positive person, there are times where I snap back into old habits, and even if they're not old habits, they're just, they're eternal. They, they're going to be there. You, like I said, they're natural, and what's natural is going to be there one way or another, even if it's just roots. It doesn't have to bloom into something big, and you have to recognize that those roots are there. There's always going to be the root, as part of being a human, a surviving human, part of the survival process is having the roots of negativity and fear and terror, because those do help you survive. They do help you make distinction in the world, and they form some of what you are. 
And so when you fear those things and you you experience them, I mean, it's very easy for people who have gotten on a positivity kick or they've transformed themselves in some way for the better to get really upset at themselves and torture themselves when they feel something negative or express something negative. And you should not do that. You should focus more on controlling those sensations and emotions than trying to get rid of them and then living in this weird state of... It's unnatural. It's an unnatural state, and it'll just create dissonance in your life by trying to be anti-negative or trying to never express anything negative. And that's... I experience this with this show because I feel like I, I can get very critical and analytical and to some degree complain or, or you know... It's just the nature of expressing yourself, really. It's like inevitably, if you want to get into things, you know, because this show, I wouldn't even want to do this show if I was just talking about everything I'm grateful for. And it's important to, to express that, too, especially if it's not your go-to, which it never has been for me. Uh, but it, it, I can even do it with this show, where sometimes I'll do an episode and I just think, God, I was really needlessly critical of a certain type of person or I referenced people I know, even if it's not by name, and even if it was some form of composite, which it often is, you know, I do try to kind of think in terms of composites. If I say like, oh, a friend of mine, or I have friends, unless I'm citing a specific story, usually it's sort of a composite that includes me too. It includes a certain type of person. It's some sort of like personal archetype in my world. But it's very easy for me to beat myself up over that and think, oh, that episode I just did, even though it's not, you know, even though it's just got a very limited audience and I'm doing it for myself in many ways, that was just way too self-indulgent or that was way too, I was needlessly critical of something that I observed. I was, it verged on complaint, which I don't want this show to be. But you can see where you can beat yourself up over the, these natural things that you need to express and uh, it, it's so it's you don't want to be anti-negative because you're setting yourself up. You're overcomplicating your life, even though you think it's simple. You know, even though a lot of these things are based on simplifying your life, because there's a lot of joy in simplification. Uh, you know, it's much healthier to be like, well, I'm gonna be negative sometimes, and I don't want to give myself the license to be negative all the time or overindulge in my negative impulses. But I have to let those, I have to let it breathe. And when you constrict that and when you pretend that you're just waving this flag, when you pretend that you're the standard bearer of, of, posit of positivity, and that means you can never express or indulge in anything negative, you're not real. You're not real at all. And other people can see that. And I, worked for people like that. I've known people like that. We all do. We see them because they're immersed in what would be called the positivity industry. And it goes, it plays into too that attitude of don't surround yourself with negative people. And there's some value to that. You shouldn't. You should look at the people around you because the people around you are not only a reflection of you, but they influence you your jewels, you reflect on each other, you know, there, there's something to that, and if you're always talking to negative people, you're either going to, it's either going to be exhausting, because you're constantly having to flex your neutrality, and not give in to the negative currency, it's like if you're hanging around people who gossip all the time, you're eventually going to give in to the gossip, because that's the currency of the group you're with, 
or you're going to be constantly flexing, constantly working out your neutrality muscle to not give in. And at what point do you just say this is exhausting and I just don't want to do this anymore. So there's something to not surrounding yourself with negative people. But I think if you're truly a secure and healthy person, you can value people and find the um you can find the value and in a person even if they are more negative than you. You can find the value in a relationship even if they don't see the world the way you see it because that's basically what it comes down to. It's a different worldview. You know, when someone complains all the time or you know, they have this kind of self-centered attachment to opposition where it's always them against the world. You know, when someone has that attitude, um, it doesn't mean that they don't have anything to offer you. And it can be a good exercise, although I don't think you should think of your relationships in those terms that often. But it's like it can be a good exercise to have people like that in your life and to see past it. And I think if you're truly healthy and secure and on the path that you're on, you can handle that, but you shouldn't be giving into it. You shouldn't be immersed in it. But let's get back to phones. Let's get back to that because you see the same sort of attitude with, you know, records, tapes, CDs. There's people who, it's like, I want the physical medium, and I'm very much that person. And there's a reason why... It also bleeds into, you know, production. It also goes into the way things look and sound, the aesthetics. And with music in particular, I fundamentally believe that music sounds better when it's recorded analog. There are limitations to it, but limitations can actually produce more freedom and ingenuity. But things sound better to me. Like, for example, the, the songs that I play on every night's a school night, I prefer them to be raw. I prefer them to sound like they were just a few tracks. You know, each instrument had one track. You know, the studio wasn't anything terribly sophisticated. I don't know, Batman is just kind of, he's on a, it's a nice day out. It's windy too, so he's just on a roll here today. He's just, he's just looking out that window, and this window here overlooks the trail. So it's just, it's going to be a new thing that we have to work through here. It's gonna. It's a new relationship um, for all of us. If you're a listener of this show, but I, I am self conscious of it. Um, but anyway, and I don't. I don't like disrupting the flow of this show either. That's, that's another thing. But um, you love these creatures, and they're in your life, and they give you so much benefit. So it's like, you know, if they if they're barking, kind of, you know, is something that you have to contend with when you're doing a freaking podcast. That's okay. Um, but anyway, so it's, you don't want to get, you know, you can just appreciate these things for what they are, where every night's a school night, I prefer, you know, analog, vintage production value, and that's just what I, even for the era, it's not even like a digital versus analog sort of idea, because even in the era, it's like something like Dion and the Belmonts has a high production value. You look at music from that era, the 1960s, you know, Phil Spector, music that has a lot of sweetener to it. If it has, you know, very high fidelity sweeping orchestral, uh, if it has a, a sweeping orchestral backdrop behind it, I'm less likely to get into it. Uh, I'm less likely to get into a wall of sound production, a specter sort of production from that era. 
but you can see what's special about that era, the 1950s and 60s, is that something could still be a hit and be very raw. And the example I always go to is Rosie and the Originals' Angel Baby, where they were a group of young teens who recorded this song they wrote in a local studio, and then they listened to the master tape so much before the record went into production that there was a slight warp to it. And I don't know what's a warp and what's not when I listen to it. I don't know what is actually damaged uh, versus what was just a raw performance. It's very hard to make that distinction, but I think it's cool. I think it's cool that they were so enamored by the fact that they created this record, they recorded this thing on these reels, that they listened to it so, and they listened to it so much that they actually damaged the master recording. So a damaged master recording created by these teens, you know, in this local studio, ended up being a big hit. At the same time that a Dion and the Belmont song or something else from the doo-wop era that was produced in a fancier studio with higher production value, that could have also been a hit. So that's something I like about that era, and I do favor the more raw production. But just I do, that's just purely for me. Just I like it for what it is because it has a certain atmosphere. In the same way that I liked flip phones, because you I liked the physicality and limitations of hitting the button multiple times. I enjoyed that. You know, there was something about it. Not enough for me to keep doing it. You know, because there reaches a point with recording equipment too, where it becomes more trouble than it's worth to try to stay stocked with tape or to try to keep buying four tracks that keep breaking because they're old, there reaches a point where it's diminishing returns. You know, I experienced diminishing returns with a flip phone. You can experience diminishing returns with equipment. But that doesn't change the fact that you just prefer certain equipment. You prefer certain mediums. And you should just prefer them for their own sake because you like how they sound, you like how they look, you like how they feel. But there does reach a point where you have to let go and you can't chain yourself to certain periods of time. You can't stay attached to certain periods of time or certain devices because everything had, there were devices before that. You know, it's, you know, people who were recording on tape, you know, at some point they had to let go of reel to reel. And it's, uh, you know, eventually people had to let go of tape and just say, hey, digital is what we do now and we can do our best with it. And I don't know what to say about that right now because we are still in the digital era. I can't look back at the digital era right now because we are still in it. As far as I know, there isn't anything newer yet, but there will be. There inevitably will be, just like people who were recording on a brand new four track in 1980, they couldn't imagine what the next step would be. Maybe they could then, maybe digital technology was enough of a thing then to where they could see where things are going. But right now we really can't see where the medium is going. And because of that, you know, it's hard to comment on digital technology in the bigger picture. But one thing that is clear is that time, the time will come where there are digital purists. There are people who were like, I liked things more when they sounded this way. I liked the way it sounded when someone just recorded direct to their computer. And the people who are doing the new thing will be like, oh, well, this is easier. You can do more with this. And there will be all kinds of arguments both ways. But there will be people at some point who are still chained to the digital medium. 
And in the same way that you look at Xerox, and there's in certain subcultures, Xerox artwork is very popular. And you can see where a lot of that is based on what would have originally been regarded as mistakes. You know, the graininess or the way that an image is reproduced poorly, quote-unquote poorly. Because, you know, when you were Xeroxing, say you worked for a business where you have to Xerox pages, and if it comes out muddy or faded or there's too much grain to it, that wasn't desirable. If the text was hard to read, if the, if the text on the page was hard to read when you Xeroxed it, that was not desirable. But you can see where, over time, that becomes desirable. Where you'll look at these subcultures where the artwork is Xeroxed, where the, the album covers are Xeroxed, and people want the grain. They want it to be barely readable. And that's fascinating, because you can see where this thing that was not desirable at one point in time becomes the desirable thing, and now we're at a point where you can't even find an analog Xerox machine. You know, even the Xerox machines we have around now, like FedEx, Kinko's, and these places, they're digital, and the grain is digital. But there will be a point in time where a digital grain becomes what people want, and you can see this online, where it's, it's popular even now to like pixelated artwork. And it has to be only in a certain way. It's not like every shitty JPEG is celebrated, but there are certain people who like a certain kind of digital artifact. And so you can see where this is going to play out, where when something new comes along, these these digital artifacts that are no longer produced in the new medium are going to become even more desirable and even more artistic. There's going to be some aesthetic appreciation for those that people didn't have 10 years ago. Because if you looked at a shitty JPEG 10 years ago, 15 years ago, nobody liked that. Nobody liked that. And and I think, like, speaking of digital music, it's like you can see where electronic music was one of the first genres to embrace that, the first genres to sort of embrace glitch. They, they embraced it in their music as well as in their artwork. And, gl- like, a glitchy-looking digital image was not desirable, though, 15 years ago, but now there is a, there's more of an appreciation for it. You know, as photos have become higher resolution, as more people have become familiar with DPI and just how digital imaging works, it has become more desirable to explore glitch and explore the, undesi- the formerly undesirable aspects of the digital medium, and that goes for you know, every format that goes for, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing, it's become desirable. And for me, like, I do prefer, like, I like to hear what I hear no matter where it is. Like, I have no problem listening to MP3s or anything. I have no problem, you know, I'm not attached to any particular format, but that said, I do believe the superior presentation of music is something you can hold in your hands that has art, and it sounds a certain way. And that varies depending on what it is. You know, not every genre, not every approach needs to be the same. But there is, you know, generally I prefer analog mediums with a, a fairly organic presentation. That's generally what I prefer. But that said, I have very much let go of that too. And I recognize where I am in history 
and I can't chain myself to any period. And even just being the age I am, 34, I was kind of late to some of that. You know, it's like the first musical releases I bought were tapes. But I was sort of at the end of that era. I'm more from the CD generation. And in fact, by the time I was a teenager, people were downloading MP3s. And I'm a product of that, too. So really, my generation is much more of a CD, MP3 generation when, it, when I came of age. CDs and MP3s were more the standard. But I did start out buying tapes, and I came to appreciate tapes after that, even in records and all these things that were actually from the generation before me because I like the presentation, I like the feel, I like the sound. And that might be pretentious, and it kind of is, you know, and I recognize that. Um, but I, I can't chain myself to it either. And, and I can't be a person who's like, I have a flip phone, and all you people who live on social media and live on Facebook are lower than me. Because it becomes this game of self-superiority, and you don't deserve that superiority. You know, it's, the might is right rule doesn't apply to attaching yourself to devices. You know, you're not a hero because you are more attached to a certain era of human communication than another era. But you can see where it goes too far the other way. Like, I don't, in this, I also don't think it's good to be always got to have the new thing, and the new thing's always better. Got to get rid of the old thing. Always have the new thing. Got to be the first person who gets a smartphone. Got to be the first person who updates, gets the new updated smartphone. You know, you don't want to be that person either. You don't want to be the person who lives on social media. You don't want to be the person who's checking it all day. Because all of this stuff comes down to control and also what you get out of it. Because if you're somebody who truly gets something out of social media, has meaningful communication on social media... That, to me, is better than being, like, some somebody who just, like, types, you know, that's better than having a typewriter and writing letters to people in this really pretentious way just because it's, like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to explain that. Um, like, I would rather talk to somebody who, like, spends all day checking their Facebook account and actually has some sort of meaningful involvement in that than somebody who is just doing this kind of hollow, pretentious exercise, you know, with a typewriter. I don't know. That's just how I feel, where I think it comes down to control and intent and controlling it. In the same way that you shouldn't be anti-negative, you should be somebody who has control of your negative feelings but accepts that they're there. You accept that you're going to have negative feelings as a human, but your focus is on controlling and recognizing them. Recognizing and controlling, in whatever order. You probably have to recognize them before you control them. Maybe. Uh, but uh, it's the same thing for me with technology, with devices, where it's more about having control over them. You don't want to be anti-technology. That's stupid, because you're attached to your own era of technology. You can't avoid technology. Um, but So you don't want to be anti-smartphone. You just want to have control and, and do what you do in a meaningful way, whether that involves keeping a flip phone, whether that involves you know having a tape collection, 
opposed to a MP3 collection, which I don't even know if people have anymore. I mean, having an MP3 collection is probably outdated now as well, where most people stream stuff. You know, and are you going to say, oh, you know, when people used to, you know, or now people are streaming. People are streaming now. And uh, for me, for me, you know, it's all about uh, having an MP3 collection because you got all the individual files organized on your your hard drive. You know, because you can easily do that. And that person is no different from the person with a record collection, with a tape collection. You know, it's no different. You know, you're chained to your time. But I think maybe one of the benefits of the digital industry, not industry, the digital medium, is uh, that I think it just naturally has less attachment. I think there's this understanding within the digital medium that don't get attached to anything because this is all just, it's another dimension. And one of the positive aspects to it, even though I don't like digital aesthetics in most cases as much as analog or organic aesthetics, I still, I recognize there's this value to the digital medium because it is more transient and I think there is more acceptance of that fact. And the transience of the digital medium translates to the real organic analog life too. It's just a more, it just happens quicker. It's more immediate. And it's, it's in the same way that the internet mirrors the way we interact as flesh-to-flesh humans. It's the same thing for the way that the digital medium impacts art and music and our interest in things. It, it just it's, it's faster. It's more prolific. And so I don't think there are many people, although I'm sure they exist, who are like, you know, oh, I, I, hate, I hate the fact that music's on YouTube and Spotify and... Um, uh, Pandory. You know, I don't like that the music's all streaming on there because I like the days when you had to go in, you know, you had to go into Napster and uh, SoulSeek and download each thing you wanted specifically. You had to seek it out in the program. You had to seek it out in the program. And, you know, and then you had to uh, keep it on your hard drive and burn it to a CD in order to listen to it in your car. You know, somebody could easily be that person, and there probably is that person. I mean, I was looking through some old CDR spindles I had, and I remember this time period where my computer audio card, whatever it is, stopped working. And I had to, anything I wanted to listen to that I had on my computer, I had to first burn it onto a CDR if I wanted to play it on my stereo, if I wanted to listen to anything. I couldn't watch YouTube videos. I couldn't, I mean, this wasn't that, this wasn't that long ago. It was about a decade ago. I couldn't watch anything. And I couldn't listen to anything online. If I wanted to hear something that was on my computer, I had to burn it to a CD. And that went on for quite a while. I mean, I would say at least a year and maybe more. And I was looking back at these CDs, these CDRs that I had. And uh, I was just thinking, oh, that was kind of nice. It was annoying, and I'm glad that I had to. I'm glad that I didn't stay in that world forever, where I have to burn everything to a CDR. But I was like, that was kind of cool. But I'm not going to get on a high horse about it and be like, oh, you people who can easily just click a button and hear something right away. In my day, we had to download the MP3 and put it on a CDR and then put it in our stereo. You know, you can easily get superior. I could get superior about that. You can see where this is just—it's insane. I mean, it's freak. It's insane the way that we can get attached and 
you know, this, this self, uh, you know, it's, you can just get really into that one way or another. And it doesn't matter whether it's 45s, LPs, tapes, MP3s. I mean, there'll be something new and there'll be somebody who's like, in my day, we had to stream stuff. On my day, we had to go to Pandori dot com and you know there's you can all you can easily chain yourself to that i mean you even see it with like toys i saw i i remember seeing this kind of this a glimpse of this world where there were people who were like i liked it when toys were made out of metal and hard plastic not these cheap new you know whatever toys you know whatever the difference is between modern plastic and old plastic, but there was this, like, men who grew up who were boys in the 1950s being like, these toys had real metal, or our playgrounds were more dangerous, and that made them better. We were tougher kids. And there's some, you know, maybe there's something to be said for that, and I I would agree. I mean, another example would be, uh, you know, when I was really young, toy guns just looked like reproductions of guns. They were really cool looking. They were black. They were, you know, they looked like more like guns. And then uh, around some point, like, you know, I was still a kid. All the guns started coming out in bright colors. They were neon. They all looked like super soakers. You know, they all looked, they had these bright neon colors. And if they did, if a gun was just black, you had to put the little cap on it. And I get it. They look too real. A kid running around with a gun, you know, you don't know if it's real or not. I get the concern. I get why they started putting orange caps on them, why they started painting them these ridiculous neon colors. And I think having a toy gun that looks like a real gun is a lot more fun for what my friends and I used to call playing guns when we'd pretend to be characters from the movie Aliens and run around shooting. And we would act out. It was role-playing. When we do this role-playing that we called playing guns, it was a lot cooler to have the realistic-looking guns, and there's a reason why we fought over those guns. There's a reason why it was like, I want to use that gun because it looks cooler, it looks realer. But I also understand that there was a reason for it to change. You know, it was you don't see kids running around with guns at all anymore. I mean, like I've seen a lot of kids out and about lately because... Uh, kids are just restless and indoors, you know, with this quarantine and all that. So there's a lot more kids just playing on the streets and they're not in school. I don't remember the last time I saw two little boys chasing each other with guns. So times change. And am I going to say, when I was a kid, we ran around with guns like little warriors, like little warriors running around. And you guys, what are you guys doing? Playing Pokemon? You know, it's like, I'm not going to shame kids for being different. I'm not going to shame the digital medium for not being the analog medium. And I have to be careful not to get self-superior about that. Like, oh, I have such a bird's-eye view of all this that it's all transient. It's all attachment. You know, it's but you just don't want to get into the mode where it's like, your decision to be into something, and it's how much of a decision is that? You know, you go with the things that you that just resonate with you. You know, that just you feel. But still, it's on some degree, it's a decision. It's like the things that you're into. Are you into them because you are just truly into them, or are you into them because you like telling people you're not into what they're into? Are you doing what you're doing as some phony act of rebellion where you're anti-negative, anti-technological? 
Are you doing it for your own reasons where you just genuinely love the medium in the same way that, you know, and, and this sounds self-superior, superior, but it's like with every night's a school night. It's like, I'm going to play music from a certain era that sounds a certain way because that to me is the magic of that music beyond the fact that I like the songwriting and, and certain performances and things like that. There is a magic to the medium itself. There is a magic to a doo-wop song that has raw, stripped-down production. And it's not the raw and stripped-down production. It's everything that's working within that song. The magic is the song, it is the performer, and it is the medium all congealing. And somebody who somebody could play the same exact song in today. I mean, there's people who still play doo-wop today, and it doesn't sound magical. You know, someone who's doing doo-wop today, in most cases, it's not going to sound magical because the production is different, the performer is different, and the songs are different. Um, I don't know what to say about that as far as, like, you know, I'm just not going to play them on my show because I just genuinely love a certain era of doo-wop. And doo-wop was a product of that era. You know, in the same way that certain technology is a product of its era, certain forms of expression are a product of its own era, too. And you can't recreate it. Whether it's doo-wop groups in the 50s and 60s, or whether it's, you know, it's like grindcore or something, you know, to use just a, a random example, where it's like there was a certain era where that music was relevant in the 80s and early 90s, and then people just wanted to keep reliving that over and over again. And it's like, you know, do you really need to keep doing that? Maybe some people like it. Maybe some people do, and maybe people just love that medium, so you can't take that away from from someone. You know, someone who just genuinely loves the form of expression called grindcore. Like, it's not going to matter to them that there was a certain era that it came out of. Uh, but, you know, you can see where even the expression itself is part of a certain era and is the product of who those people were at the time and the mediums they were working with. You know, it's so it's... It's very fascinating stuff to me. It's all very fascinating, but I think you have to be careful not to do things simply because you want to rebel against what you think the status quo is or, you know, it's just like, what are you trying to fight? What are you trying to fight when you get into that mode? And this is something that I've had to contend with myself because it's very easy for me to pat myself on the back or get self-superior about things like medium, you know, and, and I think the medium doesn't really matter. And we can see with the social media thing today where there's a lot of shaming around that, but it's like, I would rather just, I, I, rather than protesting social media or shaming other people for using social media, I would rather just feel like I have control. I would rather just feel like I have control. And in my case, and it doesn't mean that you should have a social media account. It's not like, oh, because you don't have a Facebook account, uh, you're not in control. You're like a teetotaler. You might as well be an AA. You know, because for some people, that's why they don't use it, because they know that it would be addictive. They know they wouldn't have control in the same way that some people don't drink because they know they can't control it. They know they can't moderate it. And you should be aware of that for yourself. You know, maybe you shouldn't have a smartphone because you'd be constantly using it. You'd be constantly checking it. You'd be constantly using all these apps. Maybe that's a good reason not to have it because you just can't control yourself. 
but you should at least give yourself a chance to control it. And if you find that you can't control it, you shouldn't turn around and be like, well, smartphones are awful because I can't control my own, uh, because I can't moderate my own behavior. Nobody should be able to. You know, I had to quit drinking, but I'm not going to tell people not to drink. I'm not going to tell everyone that drinking is bad for you. You know, drinking is good for some people, you know, and, and for that matter, too, I, you don't get this. Re- I don't want this revisionist attitude toward my drinking where it's like, oh, because I couldn't handle drinking anymore and there ended up being more dark times than light times, it means all my drinking days were bad. No, I had beautiful times, with beautiful people. But you can see that where when someone quits something, it's, I'm getting back to this idea of this need to rebel, where when you quit a behavior that was bad for you, it's very easy to look at that and think, that thing is fundamentally bad, and so is anybody who does it. It's somebody who becomes a born-again Christian, and they're like, you know, I, my life was just so filled with sin, and you know, it just bloomed when I found God. But anybody who hasn't found God or who is living the life that I was living, they need to do what I'm doing. And I've got to shame them for what they're doing. And it's, it's very easy to fall into that, and I think I probably do that. I think I probably do that, even though I'm aware of it. And, uh, but it's, it's the same thing for all these things. And it's always better to find that middle way. You know, it's always better to find that balance if you can. And if you can't find that balance, if you can't find that control, then, well, you know you can't do it. Like for me... I don't buy bags of Doritos because I know I can't control myself. And even if I could, I think that I, it's it's the same thing for like alcohol and and Doritos. Those are my best examples. It's like I could order one beer at this point and not drink another beer. Just like I could eat a handful of Doritos and not eat the whole bag. I know that I have the discipline to actually do that. But the problem is, is that after I have that first beer or after I have that handful of Doritos, I'm going to spend the rest of the night obsessing over it. I'm going to spend the rest of the night thinking about how much I want another one or how much I want another handful. handful. Um, so is that worth it? Even though I probably have the discipline to handle it, is it worth torturing myself with craving and feeling like I'm depriving myself of something? It's, it feels like more of a deprivation for me to have one beer or one handful of Doritos and no more than to have zero. If I have zero of something that I feel like I have struggle controlling, it's not a problem. I don't feel deprived of anything because I didn't get a taste of it. If you don't even get a taste of it, you can't feel deprived of it. It's like it never existed. And so that's my approach to any kind of addiction or any kind of self-control is there are some things where if I just get a taste of it, I'm going to spend the rest of the night thinking about how much I want another taste, and that's not worth it. That's not a fun exercise. That's There's no value to that for me. So I'd rather just not have it at all. And so some people have to take that approach to something like their phone or social media where they're like, you know, if I check this thing once, I'm going to be thinking the rest of the night about how much I want to check it again. And for that people, maybe for those people, maybe they shouldn't have Facebook on their phone. Maybe they should just have a flip phone. But maybe they should also just embrace and enjoy what it means to have that flip phone and, and not live in aversion to this thing. You know, not live in aversion to smartphones or social media just because 
they can't control it. Just enjoy what a flip phone is at that point. And I would say the same thing is true for my own issues with alcohol or Doritos, where it's like, yeah, part of the picture is avoiding those things. You know, part of the story is avoiding alcohol and avoiding Doritos, but also genuinely enjoying my life as it is without those things, but not thinking about how it's a life without those things. Not basing my life around the absence of these things that aren't a part of it. Not being anti-alcohol or anti-Dorito, but just being into my life as it is. Sober from alcohol, sober from Doritas. You know, enjoying that for its own sake is a big part of it too. Not being anti-negative, but enjoying positivity for its own sake. And not fearing those moments when you do feel negative. And negativity is the same thing as these other dependencies and addictions or compulsions, too, because I'm a person where if I give in to negativity, it is a slippery slope. If I start talking to somebody and we have similar criticisms of similar things and that fire gets lit, it's very easy for me to feed into that. It's very easy, so I have to be careful about it. But negativity is something unlike alcohol or Doritos where you're not going to avoid it. And that's the big difference there. You're not going to be able to avoid the feelings and sensations associated with negativity. So that is something that you need to learn how to contend with when it hits you. That is a high that you need to learn how to handle. And for as low as negativity is often considered, considered this low valley, this dark, hellish, petty place, this, this world of negativity, it does give you a high in the moment for sure. And there's a hangover to it too. You know, when I've been indulging in complaint, when I've been ranting and raving, sometimes on this very show, um, I'll end up feeling feverish afterward. I feel kind of sick, you know, not sick to my stomach, but when I've indulged that side of me, sometimes I do feel kind of sick afterward. But I also know I can't avoid it, so it's more about control than anything. It's more about just recognizing that those things are going to be here, and I'd rather know how to control them than try to reject them and live this life of aversion. You don't want to be attached to these things, but you don't want to live a life where you're just constantly trying to escape them either. You're not trying to run towards something or run away from it. And that's how you should look at technology too. You should look at these things. You should look at phones. You should look at your computer. You know, you should look at TV. You should look at records. Everything you come into contact with and not run toward it and not run away from it and also recognize what you just simply enjoy about it, what you value about it as its own phenomenon. And that phenomenon isn't defined by how it's different from other phenomena. You know, you shouldn't define your record collection by the fact that it's different from your CD collection or somebody's MP3 collection. You shouldn't define your record collection because it's not Pandora.com. Let your record collection just be its own experience. And a lot of people just have this figured out. That's the thing is, you know, I talk about all this shit. There's a lot of people who don't need this. They don't need to talk about this. It's just there for them. They experience everything as it is naturally. And those people are incredible. Those are the people that I talk about on here, the people that I envy who are in harmony 
the people that I aspire toward, you know, I, I aspire to be like those people, those people who can simply enjoy something for what it is and not because of how it's different from something else. And, you know, it all comes back to you, too, defining yourself, understanding who you are and not what makes you who you are because it's what's different from someone else. Because that blinds you from the similarities. And all of this stuff, you know, becomes that, you know, where you define yourself based on the things that you consume. You define yourself based on those. So none of these things are separate. And the conclusion of every episode now is just everything's connected. You know, everything's the same. Everything's similar. Don't define yourself by differentiation. But it just seems like an inescapable conclusion these days. Every day. It's, it's, it's no different now than it was thousands of years ago. You know, it's, it's just very easy to get stuck on aversion. You know, as you know, an op, you know, in opposition to attachment. I mean, it's easy to be like because I quit doing something, I now have to hate it. Because I stopped running towards something, I now have to run away from it. Rather than just letting myself be. Rather than just letting this thing be. Rather than just let the things that I consume be what they are, I've got to continually compare them. To something else and rank them. I've got to create this hierarchy. You know, getting away from that, just getting away from that, but not running away. Because sometimes just staying still, let's go back to the Jewel song that I keep talking about, standing still. Sometimes just standing still is the exact place you should be. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.